Book Sixth, Chapter Three of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Young. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. He was really notwithstanding to hear more from her of what she saw and the very next occasion had for him still other surprises than that. He received from Mrs. Lowder on the morning after his visit to Kate the telegraphic expression of a hope that he might be free to dine with them that evening, and his freedom affected him as fortunate even though in some degree qualified by her missive. Expecting American friends whom I'm so glad to find you know. His knowledge of American friends was clearly an accident of which he was to taste the fruit to the last bitterness. This apprehension, however, we hasten to add, enjoyed for him, in the immediate event, a certain merciful shrinkage, the immediate event being that, at Lancaster Gate, five minutes after his due arrival, prescribed him for 8.30. Mrs. Stringham came in alone. The long daylight, the postponed lamps, the habit of the hour, made dinners late and guests still later, so that punctual as he was, he had found Mrs. Lowder alone, with Kate herself not yet in the field. He had thus had with her several bewildering moments, bewildering by reason, fairly, of their tacit invitation to him to be supernaturally simple. This was exactly, goodness knew, what he wanted to be, but he had never had it so largely and freely, so supernaturally simply, for that matter, imputed to him as of easy achievement. It was a particular in which Aunt Maud appeared to offer herself as an example, appeared to say quite agreeably, What are one of you, don't you see, is to be just exactly as I am. The quantity of the article required was what might especially have caused him to stagger. He liked so, in general, the quantities in which Mrs. Lowder dealt. He would have liked as well to ask her how feasible she supposed it for a poor young man to resemble her at any point. But he had, after all, soon enough perceived that he was doing as she wished by letting his wonder show just a little as silly. He was conscious, moreover, of a small strange dread of the results of discussion with her, strange truly because it was her good nature, not her asperity, that he feared. Asperity might have made him angry, in which there was always a comfort. Good nature and his conditions had a tendency to make him ashamed, which Aunt Maud indeed, wonderfully liking him for himself, quite struck him as having guessed. To spare him, therefore, she also avoided discussion. She kept him down by refusing to quarrel with him. This was what she now proposed to him to enjoy, and his secret discomfort was his sense that, on the whole, it was what would best suit him. Being kept down was a bore, but his great dread, verily, was of being ashamed, which was a thing distinct, and it mattered but little that he was ashamed of that too. It was of the essence of his position that in such a house as this the tables could always be turned on him. What do you offer? What do you offer? The place, however, muffled in convenience and decorum, constantly hummed for him with that thick irony. The irony was a renewed reference to obvious bribes, and he had already seen how little aid came to him from denouncing the bribes as ugly in form. That was what the precious metals, they alone, could afford to be 
It was vain enough for him, accordingly, to try to impart a gloss to his own comparative brummagem. The humiliation of this impotence was precisely what Aunt Maud sought to mitigate for him by keeping him down, and as her effort to that end had doubtless never yet been so visible, he had probably never felt so definitely placed in the world as while he waited with her for her half-dozen other guests. She welcomed him genially back from the States, as to his view of which her few questions, though not coherent, were comprehensive, and he had the amusement of seeing in her, as through a clear glass, the outbreak of a plan and the sudden consciousness of a curiosity. She became aware of America under his eyes as a possible scene for social operations. The idea of a visit to the wonderful country had clearly but just occurred to her, yet she was talking of it at the end of a minute as her favorite dream. He didn't believe in it, but he pretended to. This helped her, as well as anything else, to treat him as harmless and blameless. She was so engaged with the further aid of a complete absence of illusions when the highest effect was given her method by the beautiful entrance of Kate. The method, therefore, received support all round, for no young man could have been less formidable than the person to the relief of whose shyness her niece ostensibly came. The ostensible in Kate struck him altogether on this occasion as prodigious, while scarcely less prodigious, for that matter, was his own reading on the spot of the relation between his companions, a relation lighted for him by the straight look, not exactly loving nor lingering, yet searching and soft, that on the part of their hostess the girl had to reckon with as she advanced. It took her in from head to foot, and in doing so it told a story that made poor Denture again the least bit sick. It marked so something with which Kate habitually and consummately reckoned. That was the story, that she was always for her beneficent dragon under arms, living up every hour, but especially at festal hours, to the value Mrs. Lowder had attached to her. High and fixed, this estimate ruled on each occasion at Lancaster Gate the social scene, so that he now recognized in it something like the artistic idea, the plastic substance, imposed by tradition, by genius, by criticism, in respect to a given character on a distinguished actress. As such a person was to dress the part, to walk, to look, to speak, and every way to express the part, so all this was what Kate was to do for the character she had undertaken, under her aunt's roof to represent. It was made up, the character, of definite elements and touches, things all perfectly ponderable to criticism, and the way for her to meet criticism was evidently at the start to be sure her make-up had had the last touch, and that she looked at least no worse than usual. Aunt Maud's appreciation of that tonight was indeed managerial, and the performer's own contribution fairly that of the faultless soldier on parade. Denture saw himself for the moment as in his purchase stall at the play. The watchful manager was in the depths of a box, and the poor actress in the glare of the footlights. But she passed the poor performer. He could see how she always passed, her wig, her paint, her jewels, every mark of her expression impeccable, and her entrance accordingly greeted with the proper round of applause. Such impressions as we thus note for Denture come and go, it must be granted, in very much less time than notation demands. 
But we may nonetheless make the point that there was, still further, time among them for him to feel almost too scared to take part in the ovation. He struck himself as having lost, for the minute, his presence of mind, so that in any case he only stared in silence at the older woman's technical challenge and at the younger one's disciplined face. It was as if the drama, it thus came to him, for the fact of a drama there was no blinking, was between them, them quite preponderantly, with Merton Densher relegated to mere spectatorship, a paying place in front and one of the most expensive. This was why his appreciation had turned for the instant to fear, had just turned, as we have said, to sickness, and in spite of the fact that the disciplined face did offer him over the footlights, as he believed, the small gleam, fine faint but exquisite, of a special intelligence. So might a practiced performer, even when raked by double-barrel glasses, seem to be all in her part, and yet convey a sign to the person in the house she loved best. The drama, at all events, as Densher saw it, meanwhile went on. Amplified soon enough by the advent of two other guests, stray gentlemen both, stragglers in the rout of the season, who visibly presented themselves to Kate during the next moments as subjects for a like impersonal treatment and sharers in a like usual mercy. At opposite ends of the social course they displayed in respect to the figure that each in his way made— one the expansive, the other the contractile effect of the perfect white waistcoat. A scratch company of two innocuous youths and a pacified veteran was therefore what now offered itself to Mrs. Stringham, who rustled in a little breathless and full of the compunction of having had to come alone. Her companion, at the last moment, had been indisposed, positively not well enough, and so had packed her off insistently with excuses, with wild regrets." The circumstance of their charming friend's illness was the first thing Kate took up with Densher on their being able after dinner, without bravado, to have ten minutes, naturally, as she called it, which wasn't what he did, together. But it was already as if the young man had, by an odd impression, throughout the meal, not been wholly deprived of Miss Teal's participation. Mrs. Lowder had made dear Milly the topic, and had proved on the spot a topic as familiar to the enthusiastic younger as to the sagacious older men. Any knowledge they might lack, Mrs. Lowder's niece was moreover alert to supply, while Densher himself was freely appealed to as the most privileged after all, of the group. Wasn't it he who had in a manner invented the wonderful creature, through having seen her first, caught her in her native jungle? Hadn't he more or less paved the way for her by his prompt recognition of her rarity, by preceding her in a friendly spirit, as he had the ear of society, with a sharp flashlight or two? He met, poor Densher, these inquiries as he could, listening with interest yet with discomfort, wincing in particular, dry journalist as he was, to find it seemingly supposed of him that he had put his pen, oh, his pen, at the service of private distinction. The ear of society? They were talking, or almost, as if he had publicly paragraphed a modest young lady. They dreamt dreams, in truth, he appeared to perceive, that fairly waked him up, and he settled himself in his place, both to resist his embarrassment and to catch the full revelation. 
His embarrassment came naturally from the fact that if he could claim no credit for Miss Teal's success, so neither could he gracefully insist on his not having been concerned with her. What touched him most nearly was that the occasion took on somehow the air of a commemorative banquet, a feast to celebrate a brilliant, if brief, career. There was, of course, more said about the heroine than if she hadn't been absent, and he found himself rather stupefied at the range of Milly's triumph. Mrs. Ladder had wonders to tell of it. The two wearers of the waistcoat, either with sincerity or with hypocrisy, professed in the matter an equal expertness, and Densher at last seemed to know himself in presence of a social case. It was Mrs. Stringham, obviously, whose testimony would have been most invoked, hadn't she been, as her friend's representative, rather confined to the function of inhaling the incense, so that Kate, who treated her beautifully, smiling at her, cheering and consoling her across the table, appeared benevolently both to speak and to interpret for her. Kate spoke as if she wouldn't perhaps understand their way of appreciating Milly, but would let them, none the less, in justice to their goodwill, express it in their coarser fashion. Densher himself wasn't unconscious in respect to this of a certain broad brotherhood with Mrs. Stringham, wondering indeed, while he followed the talk, how it might move American nerves. He had only heard of them before, but in his recent tour he had caught them in the remarkable fact, and there was now a moment or two when it came to him that he had perhaps, and not in the way of an escape, taken a lesson from them. They quivered clearly, they hummed and drummed, they leaped and bounded in Mrs. Stringham's typical organism, this lady striking him as before, all things excited, as in the native phrase, keyed up, to a perception of more elements in the occasion than he was himself able to count. She was accessible to sides of it, he imagined, that were as yet obscure to him, for, though she unmistakably rejoiced and soared, he nonetheless saw her at moments as even more agitated than pleasure required, it was a state of emotion in her that would scarce represent simply an impatience to report at home. Her little dry New England brightness, he had sampled all the shades of the American complexity, if complexity it were, had its actual reasons for finding relief most in silence, so that before the subject was changed he perceived, with surprise at the others, that they had given her enough of it. He had quite had enough of it himself by the time he was asked if it were true that their friend had really not made in her own country the mark she had chalked so large in London. It was Mrs. Lowder herself who addressed him that inquiry, while he scarce knew if he were the more impressed with her launching it under Mrs. Stringham's nose or with her hope that he would allow to London the honor of discovery. The less expansive of the white waistcoats propounded the theory that they saw in London, for all that was said, much further than in the States. It wouldn't be the first time, he urged, that they had taught the Americans to appreciate, especially when it was funny, some native product. He didn't mean that Miss Teal was funny, though she was weird, and this was precisely her magic. But it might very well be that New York, in having her to show, hadn't been aware of its luck. There were plenty of people who were nothing over there, and yet were awfully taken up in England, just as, to make the balance right, thank goodness, they sometimes sent out beauties and celebrities who left the Britain cold. 
The Britain's temperature, in truth, wasn't to be calculated, a formulation of the matter that was not reached, however, without producing in Mrs. Stringham a final feverish sally. She announced that if the point of view for a proper admiration of her young friend had seemed to fail a little in New York, there was no manner of doubt of her having carried Boston by storm. It pointed the moral that Boston, for the finer taste, left New York nowhere, and the good lady, as the exponent of this doctrine, which she set forth at a certain length, made obviously to Densher's mind her nearest approach to supplying the weirdness in which Milly's absence had left them deficient. She made it indeed effective for him by suddenly addressing him. "'You know nothing, sir, but not the least little bit about my friend.' He hadn't pretended he did, but there was a purity of reproach in Mrs. Stringham's face and tone, a purity charged apparently with solemn meanings, so that for a little, small as had been his claim, he couldn't but feel that she exaggerated. He wondered what did she mean, but while doing so he defended himself. I certainly don't know enormously much, beyond her having been most kind to me, in New York as a poor, bewildered, and newly landed alien and my having tremendously appreciated it, to which he added, he scarce knew why, what had an immediate success. Remember, Mrs. Stringham, that you weren't then present. Ah, there you are, said Kate, with much gay expression, though what it expressed he failed at the time to make out. You weren't present then, dearest, Mrs. Lowder richly concurred. You don't know, she continued with mellow gaiety, how far things may have gone. It made the little woman he could see really lose her head. She had more things in that head than any of them in any other, unless perhaps it were Kate, whom he felt as indirectly watching him during this foolish passage, though it pleased him, and because of the foolishness not to meet her eyes. He met Mrs. Stringham's, which affected him. With her he could, on occasion, clear it up. A sense produced by the mute communion between them and really the beginning, as the event was to show of something extraordinary. It was even already a little the effect of this communion that Mrs. Stringham perceptively faltered in her retort to Mrs. Lowder's joke. Oh, it's precisely my point that Mr. Densher can't have had vast opportunities. And then she smiled at him. I wasn't away, you know, long. It made everything in the oddest way in the world immediately right for him. And I wasn't there long, either. He positively saw with it that nothing for him, so far as she was concerned, would again be wrong. She's beautiful, but I don't say she's easy to know. Ah, she's a thousand and one things, replied the good lady, as if now to keep well with him. He asked nothing better. She was off with you to these parts before I knew it. I myself was off, too, away off to wonderful parts, where I had endlessly more to see. "'But you didn't forget her,' Aunt Maud interposed with almost menacing archness. "'No, of course I didn't forget her. One doesn't forget such charming impressions. But I never,' he lucidly maintained, chattered to others about her. "'She'll thank you for that, sir,' said Mrs. Stringham, with flushed firmness. "'Yet doesn't silence in such a case,' Aunt Maud blandly inquired, "'very often quite prove the depth of the impression?' He would have been amused, hadn't he been slightly displeased that all they seemed desirous to fasten on him. Well, the impression was as deep as you like, 
"'But I really want Miss Teal to know,' he pursued for Mrs. Stringham, "'that I don't figure by any consent of my own as any authority about her.' Kate came to his assistance, if assistance it was, before their friend had had time to meet this charge. "'You write about her not being easy to know. One sees her with intensity.' sees her more than one sees almost anyone, but then one discovers that that isn't knowing her, and that one may know better a person whom one doesn't see, as I say, half so much. The discrimination was interesting, but it brought them back to the fact of her success, and it was at that comparatively gross circumstance, now so fully placed before them, that Milly's anxious companion sat and looked, looked very much, as some spectator in an old-time circus might have watched the oddity of a Christian maiden in the arena mildly, caressingly martyred. It was the nosing and fumbling not of lions and tigers, but of domestic animals let loose as for the joke. Even the joke made Mrs. Stringham uneasy, and her mute communion with Densher, to which we have alluded, was more and more determined by it. He wondered afterwards if Kate had made this out, though it was not indeed till much later on that he found himself, in thought, dividing the things she might have been conscious of from the things she must have missed. If she actually missed, at any rate, Mrs. Stringham's discomfort, that but showed how her own idea held her. Her own idea was, by insisting on the fact of the girl's prominence as a feature of the season's end, to keep Denture in relation for the rest of them, both to present and to past. It's everything that has happened since that makes you naturally a little shy about her. You don't know what has happened since, but we do. We've seen it and followed it. We've a little been of it. The great thing for him at this, as Kate gave it, was, in fact, quite irresistibly that the case was a real one. The kind of thing that, when one's patience was shorter than one's curiosity, one had vaguely taken for possible in London, but in which one had never been even to the small extent concerned. The little American's sudden social adventure, her happy and no doubt harmless flourish, had probably been favored by several accidents, but it had been favored, above all, by the simple springboard of the scene, by one of those common caprices of the numberless foolish flock, gregarious movements as inscrutable as ocean currents. The huddled herd had drifted to her blindly. It might as blindly have drifted away. There had been, of course, a signal, but the great reason was probably the absence at the moment of a larger lion." The bigger beast would come, and the smaller would then incontinently vanish. It was, at all events, characteristic, and what was of the essence of it was grist to his scribbling mill, matter for his journalizing hand. That hand, already in attention, played over it, the motive as a sign of the season, a feature of the time, of the purely expeditious and rough-and-tumble nature of the social boom. The boom as in itself required, that would be the note, the subject of the process, a comparatively minor question. Anything was boomable enough when nothing else was more so. The author of the rotten book, the beauty who was no beauty, the heiress who was only that, the stranger who was for the most part saved from being inconveniently strange, but by being inconveniently familiar— the American whose Americanism had long desperately discounted, 
the creature in fine as to whom spangles or spots of any sufficiently marked and exhibited sort could be loudly enough predicated. So he judged at least within his limits in the idea that what he had thus caught in the fact was the trick of a fashion, and the tone of a society went so far as to make him take up again his sense of independence. He had supposed himself civilized, but if this was civilization— one could smoke one's pipe outside when twaddle was within. He had rather avoided, as we have remarked, Kate's eyes, but there came a moment when he would fairly have liked to put it across the table to her. I say, light of my life, is this the great world? There came another, it must be added, and doubtless as a result of something that, over the cloth, did hang between them, when she struck him as having quite answered, Dear no, for what do you take me? Not the least little bit, only a poor, silly, though quite harmless imitation. What she might have passed for saying, however, was practically merged in what she did say, for she came overtly to his aid, very much as if guessing some of his thoughts. She enunciated, to believe his bewilderment, the obvious truth that you couldn't leave London for three months at that time of the year and come back to find your friends just where they were as they had, of course, been jigging away, they might well be so red in the face that you wouldn't know them. She reconciled in fine his disclaimer about Milly, with that honor of having discovered her, which it was vain for him modestly to shirk. He had unearthed her, but it was they, all of them together, who had developed her. She was always a charmer, one of the greatest ever seen, but she wasn't the person he had backed." Denture was to feel sure afterwards that Kate had had in these pleasantries no conscious, above all, no insolent purpose of making light of poor Susan Shepherd's property in their young friend, which property, by such remarks, was very much pushed to the wall. But he was also to know that Mrs. Stringham had secretly resented them, Mrs. Stringham holding the opinion of which he was ultimately to have a glimpse that all the Kate Croys in Christendom were but dust for the feet of her Milly. That, it was true, would be what she must reveal only when driven to her last entrenchments, and well cornered in her passion, the rare passion of friendship, the sole passion of her little life, save the one other, more imperturbably cerebral, that she entertained for the art of Guy de Maupassant. She slipped in the observation that her Milly was incapable of change, was just exactly, on the contrary, the same Milly and this made little difference in the drift of Kate's contention. She was perfectly kind to Susie. It was as if she positively knew her as handicapped for any disagreement by feeling that she, Kate, had type. And by being committed to admiration of type, Kate had occasion subsequently, she found it somehow, to mention to our young man Milly's having spoken to her of this view on the good lady's part. She would like, Milly had had it from her, to put Kate Croy in a book and see what she could so do with her. Chop me up fine or serve me whole. It was a way of being got at that Kate professed she dreaded. It would be Mrs. Stringham's, however, she understood, because Mrs. Stringham oddly felt that with such stuff as the strange English girl was made of, stuff that, in spite of Maud Manningheim, who was full of sentiment, she had never known. There was none other to be employed. These things were of later evidence, yet Densher might even then have felt them in the air. They were practically in it already when Kate, 
waiving the question of her friend's chemical change, wound up with a comparatively unobjectionable proposition that he must now, having missed so much, take them all up on trust further on. He met it peacefully, a little perhaps as an example to Mrs. Stringham. Oh, as far on as you like. This even had its effect. Mrs. Stringham appropriated as much of it as might be meant for herself. A nice thing about her was that she could measure how much, so that by the time dinner was over they had really covered ground. End of Book Sixth, Chapter Three Recording by Steve Young on Cape Cod